We're honored to have in the pulpit today our Minister of Youth, Blake Scheidt, and uh, we are grateful for his service in our midst as uh, who serves every single day to our youth and to our adults as well. So uh, we're grateful for you, brother. Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you. I just want to I just want to say one thing. I had to throw a little bit of my own uh, my own love out there. I helped. I was the one who helped partner you two up at the Learning Center. So Martin Arlen, I was the I was the Learning Center director. Well, not director, but I was at working in the Learning Center at the time. And I said, you know what, you guys should date. So all, it was history after that. You know, it was all destiny after that. You're welcome, by the way. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10 for our word today. We're going to be preaching on the um, Good Samaritan. And uh, this is a fun one. But I'm going, to, I'm going to be honest with you. I had to change things last night. So in your bulletin it says uh, the three points are, uh, I think the goodness of what is it, the law, the goodness of compassion, and the, goodness, and the greatness of mercy. Today I've changed that because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through three stories. We're going to see, look at the story of the lawyer, the numbers stay the same, the story of compassion, and then the greater story or the larger story, and we'll get to that at the end. So if you like stories, then this will be good. If you don't, look at your neighbor next to you and slap them upside the head, all right? No? Okay, I'm sorry. Is that not loving your neighbor well? Let's read. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the encouragement of new members that you're moving. Thank you for... Marlon's baptism and just a celebration of a brother publicly declaring his love for you. Father, we just ask that your words would penetrate our hearts. They would move us to love you, to see the beauty of the law, to love our neighbor, and to cling to you for our righteousness. In your name, 
Amen. On Tuesdays and Wednesdays every week, I do a little side job in the neighborhood where I work down at Walter P. Carter, which is our local, uh, Penn Lucy's local elementary and middle school. And we run a t-shirt business with sixth graders, right? Sounds like a terrible idea, right? No, it's actually a great idea. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it can be a headache at points, I'll be honest. But uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach kids uh, how to work, how to have a work ethic, how to keep track of things. We do inventory, we take orders, and we try to make t-shirts with um, heating press machines. And so uh, it was on Wednesday, I had the group from Guilford come down to Walter P, and we were working together, and we did a great job. We were doing inventory, which is when you basically get all the new shipments in and you're keeping track of everything and all your product. And so when we finished an hour, uh, I had all the kids clean up, and we were getting ready to leave. And one student, there's always one, all one student, uh, he, he comes up and he, um, he decides that he's clocked out, he's done for the day. And he's goofing off, and he's walking around, and he's touching things, moving around. So one of the things I make them do, and I, I spent a long time on it last, the week before, and I said, look, I said, if you are going to clean up at the end, you need to make sure that you clean up right. So one of the things we made them do is they need to put their shirts, their business shirts that we make them put on, and when they take it off, it's like they clocked out of work. They need to put it away right, fold it so it doesn't get all messed up. So we're going to take care of ourselves and make ourselves look presentable. Well, he just throws it like a typical sixth grade boy. And so it's just piled up right there. And so I come over, I said, Damien, Damien, can you go over there and clean up the way I asked you to last time? And he said, okay. You know, he goes over and he does the whole... And, uh, and then I said, Damien, that's not good enough. Now what I'm going to make you do, because I get angry when people don't listen the first time, I'm going to make you take all the shirts, all right? So now you need, it was only like 15. So he's like, no, I'm not doing the shirts. He said, forget that. Well, at this time, I had kind of peaked at my limit for the day. And I did what, I, I'm not from Penn Lucy, but I moved to Penn Lucy. I did what Penn Lucy calls, I went hood on him. And I, I went over to him, and I said, uh, I said, you are a punk. He looked at me with his eyes all big. And I said, you, you little punk. I said, get out there. You cry, baby. I don't even want you to ride with me. I was supposed to drive them back. I said, you can walk or ride with Mr. Ernest. And he was like, oh, my gosh. He's like, well, I, I, I'll, I'll walk. I don't care. And I'm like, yeah, you, you definitely will care. You know? <laughs> We're in a battle now, right? What happened was, I didn't drive him home. I made him ride in the other car, and I saw him, and all the kids popped in my car, and they're like, he's really going to walk. He's really going to walk. I said, like, it's only three blocks away. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Entitled to a walk or drive. So, so I go home, and what do I do? I do what typically we all do when we're not sure if we did the right thing. I try to go get somebody else's voice on it, which was my wife. And I said, Lisa, you can believe this kid did this and that. He's such a punk. He's such a crybaby. And she says, okay, what do, you, what do you want me to say? I want you to tell me I did the right thing. <laughs> tell me I did the right thing. She says, I don't know what you want. You want me to stand up and clap for you? <laughs> you called a kid a punk and a crybaby. He's in sixth grade. And I thought to myself, eh, yeah, but he was. And she says, okay, do you have any, like, Bible verses that you're allowed to call a kid a punk? <laughs> And that is what a convicting wife is right there. That leads us to the question today. Did I treat that kid who's from a, another tribe than I, he's a student, I'm an adult, did I treat him with love? Did I 
Does I value him in the way that the law of God says we should love our neighbor as ourselves? Or does it not apply to children? And I stood very convicted as I was looking at this. And I actually went and tried to find him and apologize, but I, I haven't found him yet. I wonder, I wonder if he's ever coming back. But I, I, I plan on it, so hold me accountable. You can ask me. Let's look at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, background is, this is not a typical lawyer like uh, Steve Sharkey. Raise your hand. Hey, everybody knows it. He's up here all the time. I'm not throwing anything. Steve's a great guy, all right? He's, he's just a blessing. He's a lawyer. Not the same kind of lawyer. He doesn't defend national law. This is a religious guy. This lawyer is a guy who is working probably for the temple, and his whole job is to uphold the law of God. And a little background here. As we're discussing the story of the lawyer, I want you to really enter into this. Now, a lot of times the way this is preached, not always, but a lot of times, is that the lawyer is just this bad guy, Jesus is the good guy, and that's the end of the story. But that's too simple. It's too simple for us to really enter into the story. Jesus is always the good guy in the room, right? That's a, that's a given. That's the Sunday school good answer. But the people in the room aren't necessarily just bad people, and Jesus is just taking them out one by one. No, these are people who actually had good intentions and good reasons, and they misunderstood Jesus. And so what we need to look at is that in previous, we're at Luke 10, all right, there are nine chapters before this, and we need to figure out where does this question come from that he asks, and why is he asking it, okay? So the first... Look over in chapter 10 in verse 17. All right, so this is where, I'm going to paraphrase it for time. This is where he sends out his disciples. He has 72 disciples. He sends them out, and they're doing all this cool stuff that you and I probably won't get to do this side of heaven, which is, well, we won't have to do it at all in heaven, casting out demons and proclaiming the gospel and, and uh, people getting healed. And, uh, and they're like, Jesus, it worked. This is awesome. And he comes back in verse 20. He says, don't be real excited about that you casted out demons or they listen to you, but be excited about this that your name is written, what? In heaven. So the question comes, who is this rabbi who's talking about who is going to heaven and who's in heaven and who's not in heaven, right? And that starts to beg the question, who is this eternal life question? Jesus has asked this three times in the scriptures, and this is one of them. And it's interesting, he always gives these, like, impossible answers, right? You look at John 3 and Nicodemus, and he says, you got to be born again. Well, nobody can make themselves be born, right? Uh, he goes to the rich young ruler. He says, uh, you know, okay, you obeyed all the law. Now go sell everything you have and come follow me. Well, he's like, I, I can't do that. All right? So Jesus is going to start on something here again that is going to either minimize the law or it's going to maximize the law. But he comes to him and he wants to test him. Now, he's not trying to test him to get rid of him, all right? This isn't like one of those later down in Luke, we're going to throw Jesus out, and we're going to make sure we're going to get Judas to betray him, and we're going to take him out. Now, this part is just, he's got some followers. He's this liberal rabbi, all right? And liberal means he's kind of, uh, he, he's basically not really orthodox or keeping it up with uh, the conservative understandings of things, right? He's kind of radical, all right? We want to get rid of him. We want to discredit him so people just stop following him. Why? Because... This lawyer really does care about the law of God. He's not asking it because he hates Jesus, necessarily. He's asking it because he thinks that the people that are following him are really going to be in trouble if they continue to follow him. I mean, Jesus is taking uneducated people 
and he's giving them power to go out and do ministry. They are not people in seminary. And this lawyer is like your seminary professor. He's like, works in your theology department. And to him, this is like, look, I have worked so hard on theology and studying the Word of God, and these people are just like fishermen, and you're sending them out to do all this stuff? This is a recipe for what? Disaster. Do you see where the lawyer's coming from now? You're entering into his story a little bit. So when he comes to Jesus, this is a normal thing. He also shows respect because he stands up. Look at the passage. He stood up when he asked a question. That's a symbol in, uh, in Hebrew culture of respect. He doesn't disrespect Jesus like Simon did in Matthew 7 where he doesn't wash his feet or take care of him, right? This is a guy who really looks at him. He's like, he's a rabbi. He's smart. He's got some people following him. But I'm going to question him because I don't like where he's going with some of this. So that's the background. The other thing, I want to just, just real quick. Laws to this lawyer, we can learn something from him, are beautiful. In Jewish culture, right, they were, if you think about their history, they were in pagan nations often. And, and they saw the lawlessness of not having a law. They saw what happened when people did everything right in their own eyes. And they saw the destruction it brought to children. It marginalized women, and it hurt the weak. And so they saw this, and so justice never prevailed. People were never safe when the laws were not being kept. And so that's why they separated themselves from what society they were in, Roman society, very pagan society. So they separated themselves. And so Jesus is flirting with things that are not to be flirted with when it says the next question, which is love your neighbor. Let's read verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Quick, he's doing the Shema which is Deuteronomy 6, all right? And what he is basically doing is every lawyer, every priest, every Levite would have known, and every, every devout Jew would have said this twice a day. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And then he combines Leviticus 19, 18 with it, and it says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those two, those two things complete the entire Ten Commandments. So the first four of the commandments, love, your, love the Lord your God. Last six, love your neighbor. They're all summed up in that. So what does Jesus do? How does Jesus react? Let's move now into the eyes of Jesus. All right? Jesus does two things. He upholds the law, and he loves them. Now, I want you to think real quick. Apply this to yourself. Whenever you've been passionate for a cause or a philosophy or an idea that you believe in, and someone opposes you, what is your natural response? Is it to love them? Is it to fight them and keep the cause high because the cause is more important? Or is it to love them and minimize the cause because they're more important? Or can you do both? Can you disagree and love somebody? And so what we look at here is Jesus upholds the law. How does he uphold the law? Let me give you a couple. Number one, he says, you are what? Correct. He says, yeah, I agree with you. We're on the same page. This is good. Not only do I agree with you, but he says what right after that? He says, go and do it. He's not just a law believer. He's a law doer. Jesus is not just making something up or saying, yeah, that's a good idea, but, well, we're in new times, and maybe this works better. No. He's saying, go do it, and you shall live. Now, the question I have for you is, why does the story not end in verse 28? 
Why does it not end in verse 28? They're on the same team. They both agree, and they both want to go do it. I'll tell you why it doesn't end on verse 28. It's not because he wants to justify him as a righteousness that we understand in more of a reformed faith, which is we believe that the righteousness of Christ comes upon us through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. I'm saying a bunch of church jargon. All right? We believe that basically Jesus' good works are our good works. And so when God looks at us, he loves us now. That's not exactly what this is saying here. What he is doing is he is saying, I don't believe you, Jesus. I'm going to justify my first inclination that you do not really believe what you just said. Because I've seen you with people. I've seen you touch the woman who her son was dead in Luke 7 and Nain, and you are defiled. How can you be a rabbi? I've seen you have a prostitute wash her hair all over your feet. What kind of rabbi are you? That's defilement. That's bringing sin and unholiness into the camp of God's people. And so he's concerned. And so what he's saying is, I don't believe you, Jesus, so I'm going to press you harder. And the way he's going to press him is he's going to say, well, who is my neighbor? Because I've seen you love a lot of different neighbors. Now, how does Jesus love him? When you tell a story to somebody, do you tell it usually to an adult or a child? You tell it to a child, right? Every night I go to bed, I try to read Aiden, my son, uh, which is Aiden, not Aidan, thank you. Uh, Aiden, I try to read him a pajama book, and he loves when I say, it's pajama time. He just knows those words, right? We tell him a story and repeat it over and over again because he's learning how to, to memorize things and hear things and identify things. Well, in a spiritual sense, Jesus sees this brother, this lawyer, and he looks at him and he says, you need a story. I could blast you theologically right now and make you look like an idiot. I could dominate you because you've threatened me and you've called me out in front of everybody, right? Isn't that our natural inclination? How dare you? I'm the son of God. If anybody had a right, it was Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do that. He affirms him. He says, you're correct. Well, that always feels good when a teacher says that, right? And then he comes to him and he says, you are what? You're right. Go and do this. Let me tell you a story now. You, don't, you still don't get it. Let me tell you a story. He says, yeah, I still don't get it. So let's look at the story now. Verse 30 and 35. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and he saw him. He saw, I'm sorry, he saw him. He passed by on the other side. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he sent him on his way, on his animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. We don't have a lot of time, so I want to hit, there's a million things we could talk about in this passage. We could really do a three, we could do a four-week series on this passage right here. All right, I will. Lock the door. Where's Carneal? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There are two things that I really want to hit on here, 
And one is called tribalism. I'm going to explain that in a minute. And the other one is I want you to look at the way to which we love. Where do we start? How do we get there? What do we do? And we're going to look at the Samaritan. We're going to look at the other characters. And remember, this isn't about the good versus the bad. There's one good person in there. Everyone is bad. Yes, that's true. But we relate to everybody but the good Samaritan in this. I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why. Okay, background real quick. The, um, Jericho is 800 meters below sea level. Jerusalem is about 2,500 uh, meters above. So the journey on the Jericho Road, right, is through cliffs. It's a very windy, cliffy road, and there's a lot of places for burglars or robbers and people to come in and, and, and mug you. And, and one thing, the reason I'm going to call the character who gets beaten a fool is because a lot of times when you... Uh, um, when you're working in uh, communities that know better, they know you don't walk down that alley at a certain time, right? You, you look at them and say, man, I'm sorry you got beat up, but you're a fool, right? You're an idiot. I don't feel bad for him. Why did he go down there by himself, right? So why would you walk down Jericho Road by yourself? So this man's a fool, all right? So I'm going to call him the fool. The, le- the priest is the, is the top dog. He is the guy who has the law down packed. He's the guy who's in charge of the temple. He keeps the laws of God. He's the number one guy you want coming around if you got hurt. Somebody you would think, man, this guy might show mercy on me because he might, you know, understand the law of God. The second guy is the Levite. They're second class. They're not priests. They come from the tribe of Aaron. And so they were never allowed to be, or they're not from the tribe of Aaron, so they can never be a priest. So what happens is they are like the second class kind of upkeepers of the church. So they keep the laws, but they're kind of religious uh, they're very religious, but they're middle-class religion. Priest, Levite, all right? We'll get to the fourth one in a second. Now, I want to ask the question, why don't they get off the horse? Why don't they get off their animal? There's not a horse. That's a good question. But there's a lot of reasons, right? We can throw a couple out there. I don't want to get mugged, right? I don't want to get beat up. That's, a, that's, that's costly. i got to stop. But here's, the, here's some background knowledge. If a priest, and I said this earlier, I think, and a Levite come within six feet of a dead body, they could be what's called defiled. And their whole understanding of the law is to keep themselves pure. It's a self-focused way of keeping the law and understanding the law. And so one of the reasons they want to get off is they can't tell, right? Look what Jesus says. He, He does it on purpose. Jesus says this, they stripped him and left him what? Half dead. Now ask yourself, if I'm going down the road and I want to identify if this person is of my tribe or my clan or whatever you want to call it, then I need to identify him in a couple ways. Now, the way the Jews would identify each other is this. Number one, it'd be clothes. What kind of clothes do you wear? You don't have clothes, right? He's stripped. Number two, you could identify by accent. He, dead people don't talk a whole lot. I don't know about half dead people, but I don't think they talk a whole lot either, right? So Jesus does this on purpose, and here's why. Here's why he does it. Because he wants to get rid of all the tribes you could put them in. He wants them to just be simply a human. He wants them to be a person in the street that you have to really wrestle with. Do I get off? Do I help? Do I do anything? I have no obligation. I don't know if he's a Jew or not. It could be risky. It could be defiled. I could get mugged, Right? It could be costly. I might miss my appointment. 
Tribalism does this, and I'm just going to hit on this real quick. Tribalism is any tribe that you're a part of. It could be political, it could be religious, it could be anything that basically holds to a certain standard above the view of people. Now, it doesn't have to be that. I want to correct myself there. It doesn't have to be that. But what it, do, what it can do and what it's doing in here and what I guarantee you and I do is that we sometimes align ourselves to our tribes more than we do look at people. And whenever we do this, regardless of how right we are, we dehumanize the imaguo Dei, the image of God in people. That's what you do. That's what I do. When I, sit, when I looked at that kid and I saw him as a threat to me in the beginning of the story, and I saw him as somebody who was minimizing my authority, I no longer saw him as a kid. He was a threat. I no longer saw him as a student. I saw him as something to be dealt with. He was a problem. Get out of here. You're not riding in my car, right? That's what tribalism does if we don't keep ourselves in check. We're all part of them. You can't run from it. Number two, I want to touch on love. The application of love here. How, now we're going to come to the but a Samaritan part in verse 33. But a Samaritan. Now, there's something very interesting here, and I think it has a lot to do, and I'm going to try to preach it the best I can to you. But Jesus says something very interesting that Jewish people didn't say. He says, by chance. By chance, right? Look at verse uh, 31. Now, by chance, a priest, right? Then you go to the next verse, he says, and likewise, by chance again, a Levite came by. But here's the thing. Hebrews did not believe in chance. They believed in a God who ordained and was in control of all things. And it wasn't by chance that these guys came around. It was to show that they didn't have love. It exposed the truth. And so what happens is, this Samaritan comes by, but it's not by chance, but a Samaritan. Chance is gone now. And aren't you glad that we don't have a God who leaves things to chance? Aren't you glad that we have a God who gives second chances? Aren't you glad that we have a God who comes after us, and he doesn't allow chance to rip you away from the love that he has for you? There ain't no chance. That's why he says, to our sin, and that's what he says to the devil. He gets off, and he, need, he does what he needs to do. But a Samaritan. He doesn't leave any chance. He gets off, and he does four things. Four things. And this is the thing we're going to talk about with love. They all three do something similar. The, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. What are they? Look to your neighbor and try to figure it out. They see. They all see. Now, the first two, they see him. The last one sees him. You see the quotations are different. You can look at somebody but not really see somebody. I'll give you, for instance, when you're driving around uh, parts of Baltimore and people come up and they're begging, you see them, but a lot of times what? You don't really see them. Turn green, turn green, turn green, right? Come on now, be honest. And so sometimes we're put, love does that. It puts you in awkward situations where you're forced to look at things you don't want to look at. Samaritan didn't come by one to look at that. But love looks, number one. And when you sit and you look long enough, you allow time for what to happen. What's the next thing that happens with the Samaritan? Compassion. He looks and he has compassion. 
The other two don't look long enough to feel any compassion. Compassion leads us to loving action. Those are the three. Looking, compassion, loving action, and then the last one, count the cost. Count the cost. Because love is always costly when you get off your animal and you get into the mess of people's lives. That's why this is so interesting if you sit on it and you just realize what Jesus is really saying. I've never seen somebody do such, such a profound statement in like five sentences. Only Jesus could do something like that. But you, you look at this and you just say, man, how have I looked at people lately? How have I had compassion on people? Like, have I looked long enough or have I been so busy going to my appointments, doing my business, not wanting to look outside the window? You know? Looking. But thank God that we have a God who looks at us. Thank God that we have a God who looks at us, he sees us. But I want to I say one last thing. This is a little application before we end on the last point. Look at verse 34 and 35. This is very important when you decide to look at things long enough and build compassion in your life towards your neighbor and then move. Think of these two things. There are always going to be, in verse 34, the immediate help that is going to take place. It's going to be immediate, right? He gets off the horse. He bandages him up. He gives him his oil, his wine. He throws him on his horse, right? Those are all like the ER emergency part. But then 35, what does he do? He counts the cost that before he gets off, this is going to be a long-term journey. This isn't just going to be, I stopped, I did my good deed, and then I get to go back home, you know? This is like, no, I'm going to take him somewhere. I'm going to pay for him. And this is really what he's saying. This is, this is what blew my mind. What he's really saying is when we say, love your neighbor as yourself, I want you to picture this. You would give your bank account to somebody that you would give to yourself. Think of transferring all your money to Blake. I say, by the way, is that a good idea? No, I'm just kidding. Think of that for a second, though. That you would give up, you would treat somebody the exact same way that you want to be treated. We don't do that. We think that we're doing good because we let some, some person come over and sleep on the couch. Well, I don't sleep on the couch. I sleep in my bed, right? These are just little practical ways, but I want you to feel what Jesus is really saying. He's saying not only do you have to love him exactly the way that you would want to be loved, but you have to do this to everybody, Christians and non-Christians, just to make that clear. You are going to love your enemies this way. And you say, the, the guy looks at him, and Jesus says, now which one of them was a real neighbor? He changes the question. He says, who is my neighbor and Jesus says, this guy's so lost, he doesn't even know what being a neighbor is. The truth is, Jesus came to save us because we're terrible neighbors. We've been awful neighbors to him. We've been awful neighbors to each other. And a lot of it starts with how we look at people, how we look at things. And I tell you, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, pick up your cross and come follow me. He's saying, die to thinking of yourself all the time. Stop putting up Instagram photos of yourself. Stop posting all your great thoughts. I'm guilty of that too. Nobody cares. You know? Start thinking of other people. Guys, I have, and there's nothing I'm saying to you I haven't said to myself. So I'm going to close on this. There's, there's a great larger story here. Jesus throws the weight and the beauty of the law. 
And what we do, if we try to be the Savior, if we try to be a Messiah to Penn, Lucy, Baltimore, and the world, what we wind up doing is we miss out on the grace and the beauty of the law, and we minimize and burn out. Those are two. We minimize the beauty of God, and we burn out. But God deserves so much more beauty. The law is so much more beautiful, and his grace is so much more impactful than you and I can ever dear hope. And what I want you to, to think of is that the larger story is the end of Luke. Luke is building a story here. And yes, he, he makes him sit on this, and he doesn't answer at the end. I'm not going to do that to you because I've read the whole book, and I know what the end is. But it is important to sit on this. Go and do likewise. The law is a good thing. I think sometimes the conservatives want to get rid of it, and they just want to say righteousness of Christ, and this is all about he made it really hard, and so we just know the answer is Jesus, right? And then I think sometimes the more liberal church tends to say, well, let's go out, and we're going to be the saviors, and we're going to change everything, and rah, 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 right? But then they realize they can't do that. You can't do that. And conservatives were like, duh, you can't do that. That's why we don't do anything, right? There's a balance here. There's a balance here. And when Christianity has flourished throughout history, it's always held the two very highly equal. It has held the loving my neighbor and the gospel equal. It is what can I do for my neighbor because I have seen the, the amazing cost it took Jesus to save me. I've seen what he has done when he looked at me and saw me in my greatest estate beaten on the side of the road. I have seen his compassion and felt it. I have what? I have been moved by his loving affection. And I have and still am learning the cost it took to save a sinner like me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your story. Thank you for using a sinner like me um, to bring your word before a great congregation of people. Lord, teach us to be loving neighbors. Teach us to go out and care for the poor the needy, the people that will never come to church. They're not in some other tribe. They are people. Let us look at them that way. And let us not be scared to enter the messiness because you, Lord, have entered into ours. Amen.